Hey, uh, I'll keep it brief here because there is some brilliant stuff to crack on with, but just dropping in to say hi and welcome to the Stage Podcast in association with Charcoal Blue. I'm just wandering back across the meadows after 11 hours of seeing shows. I love walking across the meadows in the evening because uh, you get these amazing like moody sunsets over Arthur's seat which always stays lit up later than the rest of the city and there's a few people walking their dogs doing their exercises or stumbling home drunk first up on the podcast we've got Lynn Gardner and stage critic Fergus Morgan who are joining me to talk about the NHS themed shows at this year's Fringe uh, then there's a lovely, lovely chat with Julie Hesmond-Hausch, uh, who you might know from Coronation Street and Broadchurch, and she won our first Edinburgh Stage Award this year for her performance in The Greatest Play in the History of the World, which her husband wrote for her, so we'll talk about that. Now we've got a very juicy gardener's question time, so th- thank you for all the questions for that, and keep them coming in. Uh, send them to me on Twitter or tim.lestage.co.uk. Amid all the positivity, we've got fringe horror stories from Helen Monks. Uh, Helen's a brilliant actress. She's, um, she was in Raised by Wolves on TV. She played young Catelyn Moran. She was an upstart crow as well. And she also runs Lung Theatre with Matt Woodhead. They've got a play on this year called Trojan Horse, which is very much worth your time, actually. Uh, but she's also been collecting fringe horror stories for a weekly show called You've Been Fringed, which is like a kind of stand-up scratch night uh, where people describe their fringe horror stories. And it's free, so, you know, go along to that. She'll be popping up every so often to just tell us some of these stories and in fact here's one straight away my absolute favorite um, is a friend of mine who performed last week Alice Marshall where her theatre company they were they had a show out in Leith at a disbanded car park um, and every day they had to cancel the show because no one knew that it was there apart from one day when one man turned up and it was a sort of like immersive thing where you had to walk around and he began gyrating at every single cast member um, and they were a student company so they didn't really know what to do so they just carried on but Alice Marshall couldn't control herself and just found it so funny that she laughed and laughed and laughed until she weed into her leotard um, this same company then got back to Bristol University and they got called into the Chancellor's office because um, it turned out that they were not supposed to have graffitied all over the car park even though their director told them that they could the director was a third year so she'd left uni so all these first year students ended up having to set up standing orders to pay back the damage they'd caused to the car park they are all still working in the arts I don't understand how it hasn't been so traumatic that they've all quit <laughs> So yeah, there's more to come of those. Uh, now let's pop into the stage kitchen uh, to talk about some shows. Uh, it's a bit echo in there, so uh, I'm making fajitas for Lynn and Fergus. Lynn's brought the wine. Fergus has brought nothing, but he did wash up afterwards. So we're in the stage flat. So who have we got here? Lynn, Lynn Gardner, of course. Looking, well, by your own admission, like you spent two weeks at the Fringe, although, you know, I don't agree with that. I think you look like you've only spent a day at the Fringe uh, myself. Well, and, uh, like two weeks at the, at the fringe, fringe and lots of rain. Lots of yeah, rain is the killer. Kind of, yeah, Miss Havisham look I'm sporting today. <laughs> yeah. The rain has come down yeah. today, definitely. I mean, you don't look anywhere near as bad as Fergus, so, <laughs> so it's fine. How many weeks does it look like I've spent at the Fringe? Uh, it looks like you were born here. <laughs> Yeah, I've been 24 years. <laughs> so we're going um, to gonna be making some dinner while we're doing this. But anyway, the theme of this week's discussion is the NHS shows. So um, obviously it's the 70th anniversary of the NHS, and there are a few shows up here which 
are around that theme. Uh, so there are four that we're focusing on today, and one of them, oh, we're having fajitas, by the way. Is that okay with both of you? Yeah, and it looks really healthy. It is, is going to be healthy, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. That's, that's appropriate to the theme, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let's start with Mark Thomas. So, obviously, a fringe stalwart. Lynn, mm-hmm. could you explain a bit about um, Mark Thomas's show and what you made of it? Mark Thomas's show is a kind of checkup on the NHS. Uh, and it takes the form of uh, him alone on stage, but uh, what we also kind of see on film is the research that he's done into the show. Uh, he has a kind of uh, one of those health MOTs with a um, uh, with a GP, which is kind of uh, quite entertaining. A gleefully macabre doctor, who absolutely, who kind of points out to him that you know when it comes down to it, the only things he sort of doesn't really have to worry about are. Menopause. What was the other one? I don't remember what the that's other one. That's just an awful lot that's going to go wrong with Mark yeah, Thomas. Yeah, yeah, because he's yeah. fifty-five. He's a man, and uh, I'll be very sad when when it does go wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's uh, a show that, in many ways, I guess, is sort of a love letter to the NHS, uh, and yet at the same time, is kind of quite. What I really liked about it, it's quite sort of beady-eyed around um, the fact that we blithely tend to go round, kind of saying, "Oh, the NHS, best in the world." Yeah, and actually the statistics that he pointed out were really, really shocking. He stuffs it full of facts um, and the ones that really startled me were the ones about health outcomes and how they're dependent on class and income. There was one where I think it's one of the first statistics he gives. It's quite early on in the show when he talks about how if you're in central London, Mm. every stop you go on the central line towards the east end, life expectancy drops. Like for the people living in that area by two years each from home. It's yeah. one of those statistics that the, just what that what that implies it actually made me my, my eyes started watering. So I think you know one of the things that actually that Mark Thomas's show does is that um, it makes us kind of love the NHS. It makes us laugh a bit, uh, and I think it also makes us kind of check the truisms mm. and the things that we accept around it it's uh, some... and it points up the kind of the injustice really yeah. of healthcare in this country it's certainly quite uh, sentimental about the NHS but it's not sort of um, less blindly senti- sentimental less sentimental it. than Danny Boyle I think yes, yes. I agree yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah, he has that, that picture that clip, of uh, the 2012 yeah. opening yeah. ceremony yeah. with yeah. God yeah. bless our NHS yeah. or whatever it yeah. is and everybody looking like Mary Poppins <laughs> in <Yeah>. their starch <laughs> in their starch dresses swirling yeah. around yeah, yeah. yeah it's quite classic Mark Thomas in a way and it's just it's really well researched he's talked to some really interesting people to make it and he just delivers it so well he's got such a He's such a raconteur. He's got a great style about him. I could listen to Mark Thomas read the shipping forecast. In fact, actually, I thought that was a slight issue with the show. That in fact, it it seemed to me that it just ended quite abruptly. Yeah. And and, uh, it felt as though he hadn't kind of quite shaped the show at the time. Certainly not as much as I think he shaped other shows, particularly the Red Shed show, which is sort of. So that was from last year, two years ago, 2016, I think. Um, And that when he got everyone to stand up at the end and sing Solidarity Fred, that felt like it had a real, (laughs) I mean, however you felt about that, but it had a real sort of finale to it. But this one didn't seem to have it, sort of. I found it a bit frustrating because it is it is dancing around a lot of huge things and it, he's interspersing well he apts out bits of interviews that he conducted with various kind of senior health professionals so Dame Sally Davis chief medical officer you know a, a kind of a, a professor of medical innovation who's talking about nanobots being used in surgery and this kind of stuff but it's all so fleeting mm-hmm. and you're you know and these facts as well these facts are, 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 are sort of dumped in there and you're just thinking god there's a show in every single one of these people yeah. you're talking to 
to in every single fact you produce. You know what? I think it's the show that probably I've most quoted to people. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, very, very just possible. meeting people. I mean, then the point that the you, that you make yeah. the statistics, I yeah. kind of got, and did you know? Yeah. And, yeah. You, I mean, the thing that, that really I was reminded in that show is just how he's just such a good performer. Mm. I mean, and he's a really good actor as well. Mm. Obviously, he's so he plays all the people that he's interviewed. He evokes a character with yeah. this sort of one line. He's like, yeah. she's the sort of person that will, you yeah. know. And there was that fantastic bit where he describes shadowing a, a, a doctor in A&E and you get that bit where the woman comes in with, you know, these huge injuries and he's just describing the whole setup of uh, this woman being on the bed and where he is and you really get, it's one of those moments where you're, you're suddenly, after the scene is over, you're surprised there's only ever been one person on stage. Mm. So the next one, I suppose, how about where it hurts. So this is uh, Fergus. Why don't you you explain a bit about this one? Where it hurts. It's put together by Jeremy Weller and um, the Grass Market Project, which is uh, I think it's a charity up here in Edinburgh that works with a lot of homeless people. And it's basically a lot of um, true stories delivered by the people that experience them, um, sort of spliced together. They're all sat round in a big circle as if they're in a waiting room, and they come forward one at a time. And sometimes they argue with each other. Um, they come forward, they tell their stories about the NHS, and there are all sorts of there are all sorts of stories from loads of different angles. There's a lot of it is about mental health. It's community theatre, so a lot of the the production values aren't particularly high, but it has a lot of sort of truth and a lot of un- it's not particularly sentimental about the NHS either, and it offers that in, in compensation. So it ends up affecting you quite a lot, I think. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, and I thought that. Uh, there is no way that you can d- describe this by the kind of traditional standards of mm. good theatre. That's true. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and yet, I, or, you know, and actually on the night I saw it, several people left very early That's on. Oh, really? Uh, which I think, yeah, uh, which I think is enormously kind of disappointing because one of the things that I think works really, really in its favour uh, is about the fact that the the messiness of the way that mm. it is staged uh, absolutely reflects the kind of messiness of people's lives and about the fact that the point that he made I think kind of in a really understated but I thought incredibly moving way was about the fact that um, yes sometimes the NHS fails but for large numbers of people it is completely and utterly their safety net. The, the variety of stories on there just makes you realise just how much the NHS offers in terms of care, in terms of physical well-being and mental well-being and yeah. all these sorts of things. Yeah. yeah, free from fear. That was the line that Mark Thomas kept bringing. Oh, that's back, right, which, that, is, which is what Bevan said yeah. in the setting up. Yes. It's such so, an interesting way of looking yeah. at the NHS. And, and I'd seen Mark Thomas before seeing where it hurts. And I found that um, a lot of his show kept bleeding into my interpreta- interpretation of where it hurts. Yeah, mm. yeah. I, think that's, uh, I think that's completely true. And I think there is something else about, you see so much kind of verbatim theatre that actually you are really aware of how incredibly intricately it is crafted and yeah. mediated mm. by the people who are making it. Yeah. And I'm not saying there is no craft in this. Uh, I think actually there is a lot a great of craft deal, yeah. in getting kind of the people up there on oh, stage yeah. and telling their own stories. But it is from the horse's mouth. Yeah, and, it's, it's uh, And so it's authentic, unshowy. And in the end, I think that's absolutely why it does get you where it hurts. You know what really actually, uh, dis- I didn't get on with in the show was its prologue actually about mm, Mama yeah. NHS. Yeah. I didn't like that poem. Because Jeremy Weller says when he, when he was putting the show together, what he realised is that the NHS isn't really definable as an, an entity. It's a collection of people. 
But that prologue just sort of undermined that idea because that's what the whole show is about. It's this collection of stories that show you the individuals that make up this huge institution. Mm. But this sort of personifying of the NHS, I felt kind of slightly undermined that, that idea. Oh, yeah. Interestingly, the same woman who delivers that then later on, of course, talks about how the NHS failed, failed her. her. So yeah. that, uh, but maybe that's kind of quite deliberate, that yeah. on one hand you have this you know, almost over-the-top kind of poetic hymn to the NHS, and that even if it failed her, that that's how she feels. There's a fantastic uh, speech at the end, the last man to stand up uh, is a doctor working in the NHS, and he says this wonderful thing that stuck with me. Um, he, when he came into the NHS, it was to care for people, he meant to care for people. Mm. But nowadays, it's to administer care for people. I used to think I was paid to care. That's it. But now I realise I'm paid to administer care, to perform a role. And that um, distinction, and that distinction. And it goes, I will not perform yeah, yeah. care. And I thought that was really powerful. Because I do care. Yeah, and I thought that was yeah. super powerful. And it comes back again in... Um, well, a fortunate in, man, in that's a good, man, yeah. good link yeah. to that, Joe. This idea of nowadays it's performing care and acting care rather than just simply caring for people. So a fortunate man, it's um, by New Perspective City Company, we've also got a fantastic book up here called The Fishermen, and it's adapted from this John Berger book, um, you know, he was a famous kind of art critic and thinker and writer, but he did this book back in 1967 which just sort of followed a country doctor in the Forest of Dean and it was John Berger did the words and Jean Maud did these photographs and the idea was to lay text and image alongside each other and that really is about that notion of care as well I suppose so but I think the whole thing in some ways is um, framed by two things is one about the fact that the book itself is absolutely a 50-50 uh, equal split between word and, and image, image. Mm. and I think it's something that the production itself plays with kind of constantly but I also think there is a point in it where you see an interview with John Berger and he talks about the fact that he is a storyteller because he listens to yeah. people's stories. And what you sense is that with this GP, he sees care as being listening mm. to his patients. Yeah. And I suppose that's, you know, the vast difference, isn't it, between the seven-minute consultation that we get in the NHS now, where I think, again, it's in, perhaps in the Mark Thomas show, he kind of, there's a GP kind of saying, you know, what a disaster it is if somebody comes in with more than one ailment. Yes. I think, it's, I think it's perhaps the least openly political of the four yes. plays we're talking about tonight. But, but underneath yes. that, there's a sort of nostalgia almost for an age when GPs weren't sort of flown in. They were, they were, they were part of the community more. They knew your family's history in villages, in towns, in rural, and particularly in rural communities yeah. as well, because that's something that's obviously suffered quite a lot uh, in recent times. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting show. It wasn't what I expected it to be at all. I, I would take issue with you when you talk about it, about it being nostalgic. I think it is presents an image of something which is of its time. Perhaps that was a better way of being a doctor. Mm. But I don't think I don't think it's a show that's a nostalgic. No, I mean show. maybe nostalgic's about the right word, but it's very mem it's not very memory based. It's very sort yeah. of it and, looks and, back and, and one of the reasons that it's not just nostalgic is of course without giving too much away yeah, is about that there are huge ambiguities that start mm. to emerge throughout the show and the idea of uh, a man who cared very much too for much. his patients, maybe too much. Mm 
so that he could not quite care for himself. It uses quite a lot of symbolism and this sort of marriage of text, these two actors speaking into microphones for a lot of it, and then they retreat to the stage and perform these sort of symbolic acts, scattering leaves, wrapping tree trunks in bandages, that sort of thing. Um, but it actually turns out it's much more of a portrait of a man than something that's openly political. I thought it was this, it names the, the acts the first act is called landscape and the second one's called portrait and the third one is called x-ray but I thought that actually it was playing with this idea of landscape and portrait in a really interesting way because it's the first thing it says is how important it was for Berger to create this and, and the photographs by Jean Mott to evoke the sense of landscape of the Forest of Dean and the landscape of what a doctor's day-to-day duties were and life was at that point. And then it builds into that these individual portraits of people. And I think that interplay really, really interested me. And, and again, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's both a kind of theatrical representation of the book because it lays image, an abstract image, like you're saying, wrapping bandages around tree trunks and scattering leaves and scattering shredded bits of paper. It's these quite abstract images that you're having to work as an audience member to interpret. It lays that alongside the, mm. the spoken text, but it also extends beyond the book, which mm. is, I, I, I love that aspect of it. And I think it's a show of you know, of, of in, that actually takes care in how it uses its source material. I kind of think that in some ways it is the kind of show that, because it kind of doesn't have perhaps an immediate impact, it's more like the reverberations of a stone kind mm, of dropped yeah. in the pond. Yeah. I'd say it's one of the shows that has stayed with me mm, most I, over the last couple of weeks. It's one of the shows that's forced me to think the most about it as yeah. well. I think it's really well suited to the room it's in, actually. Oh, because it's brilliantly it suited. It starts as, it's in the demonstration, demonstration room, which was an old veterinarian dissecting yeah, room. It starts as a lecture. It's these two people presenting a lecture about the book, A Fortunate Man, by John Berger. Um, and, then it, and then it evolves into other things and it becomes a lot more symbolic and a lot more sort of experimental. But I think you're right, because I think up here, it's the sort of show you need to ponder over and piece together in your own head afterwards. And up here, when you're seeing, you know, four or five shows a day, got 18 shows a day like you are, mm. that it's just you're on to the next thing. You don't have that moment of reflection on the show. And I think it's a show that deserves a moment of reflection. Yeah. As well as that one being in the demonstration room, of course, the fourth show, which we're going to talk about, After the Cuts, was also in that same room and Brilliant. also worked brilliantly in that room, I think. Fergus, <laughs> um, yeah. you explain a bit about this show. Um, After the Cuts, so it's by Gary McNair, who is having a cracking fringe, I should say, because he also wrote Square Go with Kieran Hurley, which I think probably the best show ever made. Um, <laughs> but After the Cuts is his sort of, it's a very dark comedy drama about a man and his wife who is set in the future, it's set in a sort of dystopia, I think it's in 2042 or something like that, yeah. when the NHS is essentially no more and British healthcare is run by cowboys like Richard Branson charging um, extortionate amounts for insurance that insurance contracts that they then don't honour essentially so what happens in the play is this man's wife is diagnosed with lung cancer um, they're told by their insurance company that they're not covered and they have no money they have no other options so because he's a fixer of things he decides to fix her himself and I don't think it's a spoiler there to say it happens quite early on you understand what's going to happen quite early on that he's, he's going to operate on her himself and the rest of the play is him preparing for and then undertaking that operation in front of you, which is why it works so well in the demonstration room. The, the person sitting next to me fainted. Really? Oh, really? Yes. I don't well, blame them. Because it starts out as this sort of really kind of, almost quite conventional sitcom-style yeah, comedy. Yeah, kind of dull, and yeah. you kind of go, what is this? You know, because it's kind of pure naturalism. And it's know? got silly jokes about yeah. insurance yeah. and how awful insurance people are, yeah. and it quite gently introduces this kind of future, this sort of slight dystopia. And then there's a moment where 
you realise it's going to happen. It's brilliant. And the actor, George Doherty, who's fantastic, puts on this stripy apron, just a kitchen apron, and pulls out this rusty old gurney. And it's just so chilling. It's, I mean, it becomes like pure Sweeney Todd kind of thing. It's still funny, though. Even, and it's still even really when, funny, yeah. Even when he starts operating on her in front of you. And it's quite, it's really well done. It's quite graphic yeah. and done. Yeah. It's still so very yeah. funny. I mean, the thing, of course, that's really macabre about it, of course, in the end, is that people are pushed mm. to that. So those are the four NHS shows. So, Lynn, would you have a highlight out of the four of them? Or is it too difficult to say? No, I think it's quite difficult to say because I think in their own way, I really, you know, loved all four They're of all these. They're all doing very, very different things. Yeah. It's quite interesting to see that. After the cuts. After the cuts. I rated them all. Um, but after the cuts, I thought was it's one of my favourite things I've seen up here. Look, I'm about to put the onions on for these fajitas. So, are there any um, other recommendations you want to make? Oh, how long have you got? Um, got about five minutes. About five minutes. Um, no, but I seem to spend a lot of time in the roundabout uh, this fringe, which suits me to the ground. And I think I've, everything I've seen in there so far, I absolutely love. I'd say go and see all three of the Untapped shows at the Underbelly, uh, and they're three crackers. Uh, there's Queens of Sheba, oh, uh, which yeah. is a fantastic mm. show with uh, four young black women uh, being kind of loud, proud, and sorrowful about what it is to be a black woman in the UK. Today. I love that. I love the way that they're supporting each other on stage. They're yeah. just so um, loving towards each other on stage. It's such a, a nice thing to see. Yeah. That was the first show me and Tim saw yeah. when we came up here. Oh, and the really? night that we came, that you came up, yeah. the second night I was here. Yeah. And I don't know if we've topped it yet. No, yeah. we peaked quite early. <laughs> yeah, we really did peak too soon. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, also, Breaches, It's True, It's True, It's True, mm-hmm. is absolutely fantastic. And the third one, which actually I've just come from, Dressed, based on uh, the true story of one of the cast members who was um, stripped and sexually assaulted while in Australia. And uh, this is a show about dealing with trauma and about friendship and support. And it is uh, utterly harrowing, gorgeous, and uh, very, very clever theatrically. Interestingly, when we recorded the last one of these, you were saying that you were a bit kind of... You, you, that, that sort of glumness that comes with not seeing anything that's really blown you away but then this evening when you came in you were sort yeah, of full yeah, of praise that, it's my first five star show breaking right. news yeah, yeah, yeah first yeah, five star yeah, show yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic um, well I think we're going to another glass of wine and get these heaters on I know of one company where there was such a huge falling out that the director um, one day screamed at all of the cast that they hope on, she hoped on their way back from Edinburgh they all had um, a car crash and were killed the cast were then responsible for driving the van from Edinburgh back to Bristol Uni and the van crashed and um, got written off and the entire set was destroyed but luckily nobody died because I think actually then the director felt a huge amount of guilt and responsibility like she'd willed it to happen but it meant the play could never be performed again because it had all been destroyed in the crash so um, light and shade. Julie Hesmanhouse, I mean, what is there to say about her except she's just the warmest woman in the history of the world uh, and she's performing the greatest play in the history of the world at the Traverse uh, and it's, it's just brilliant actually. Obviously loads of people know her from being Hayley Cropper on Coronation Street and she was in the most recent series of Broadchurch too. Um, it was pretty miserable weather so we didn't actually brave the eight minute mile so I'm sorry about that but we did do a little eight minute amble around the castle in the drizzle. Um, did you see 
your face beaming from the front of the stage this week. I did, uh, very lovely, and lots of people really kindly shared it back to me <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah, no, it was lovely. I was so chuffed. Things like that just make it feel all worthwhile, and, and not just for me, but for the whole sort of creative team behind yeah. the behind the play and, and for you know my lovely fellow who wrote it and Raz who directed it it's just a little it's a little boost after all the hard work isn't it so it was great well yeah so I mean let's talk about the, the story behind the play because it's got such a lovely story behind it as well as being a lovely story within it yeah yeah, God, yeah we, we can never we can never split up now can we <laughs> ruin it for everyone um yeah well basically um my husband Ian Kershaw is a writer and uh He's on the Corrie writing team now, actually, so he's kind of taken over there as I left off, which is fantastic because <laughs> I still get all the gossip. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, a couple of Christmases ago, I said to him, uh, write something for me, write a one-woman play and make it something that's not um, age-specific so that we can keep on doing it. Yeah. And, you know, and in quiet times during our, you know, advancing years, yeah. we can just take it to little festivals here, there and everywhere and bless his little obedient heart... He, uh, he did it and uh, and he just kept popping down to his cellar where I keep him and then just presented me after Christmas with this beautiful one woman show about love and loss and the universe and did you know when he was writing it what it was about I didn't even know he was writing it oh really oh no he presented the light as a, a finished thing to me so he literally just like there you go and it's a lovely thing for our daughters as well because we have yeah. two daughters that are 16 and 13 um, and our 16 year old Martha in particular loves theatre she's an absolute theatre geek like me she can't get enough of it um, you've trained her well I've trained her very well <laughs> she's just like and I think she will go into it although right. she doesn't know whether it's as a performer yet but certainly in, in some capacity because like me it's a happy place and uh, and when we did the little run at the uh, Royal Exchange the little tryout really last autumn I mean, she came to, I think, every performance of it. She really yeah. sort of gets the, the amazing thing that this is her mum and dad's project that will be her legacy, really. She I don't know, like I suppose. It's like, oh, she, you know, she has her moments. I've <laughs> 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 painted a very positive picture of her, aren't I? You know, yeah, not, I'm not selling a lifestyle here, Tim. You know, it's like, <laughs> it has its challenges. <laughs> do you, do you, how do you feel about her going into performing or acting or that, that kind of work? Oh, I'm over the moon. I'm over the moon yeah. because... For me, I just think, uh, I've never understood it. You know, I know a lot of, um, you know, people in the arts who are just like, oh, no, no, it's, it's too wide. And, it, and, and of course, you know, it is. Every, everybody knows that in this industry there are huge challenges and, you know, often long periods of uncertainty and unemployment. And, and I've certainly been through those years yeah. myself. Yeah. But, but what they can never take away from you it's having your tribe, your people, your yeah. community. And it's, uh, and I just, I can't reinforce that more to her really, that the life that you lead, it's not an easy life, but it's a full and rich life. And the people that you'll meet and connect with along the way just make it all worthwhile. I mean, I, in, the, in the 90s, when I'd left drama school, I set up a theatre company in London called Arts Threshold with a group of mates, fellow graduates. It's where Rufus Norris directed his first play, actually. Oh. And I was in it. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, yeah. And we, uh, we just wrote to loads of famous people and got loads of money <laughs> and built a theatre under a block of flats in Paddington. And then a gang of us lived together in Stockwell in South London. 
And amongst us is Natasha Chivers, who's now Olivier award-winning lighting yeah. designer, Stephen Hoggart of Frantic Assembly, you know, <laughs> probably the most famous movement director in the world, yeah. you know. Um, Joe Alessi, who's like an award-winning actor. There was me. It's like, <laughs> I mean, there were just, there were, it was just this like, I mean, and we were all struggling and, and yeah. you know, making ends meet and, you know, signing on, doing bits of jobs. Yeah. And, uh, but, but, we had our tribe. That's what I want for her. That's what I want for her, really. So, after Corey, what? Well, first of all, what what was it in your head that made you think actually? I think it's time now. Time, time to, go. to go. Well, uh, well, I never thought that time would ever come because really? I uh, I loved it there. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. And um, when I decided to leave, I think I'd been there already fourteen years. I had a family, yeah. you know, I met my husband there, I loved it, but I didn't have any ambition to do anything else. Mm. Um, but then I got quite involved with the Sophie Lancaster Foundation, which is a, a foundation set up by Sylvia Lancaster, who lost her daughter in a very brutal hate crime uh, because she was, uh, well, because she was an alternative young person, she was like, she identified as goth, and her and her boyfriend were attacked in a, pub, in a park in Lancashire, and she died from her injuries around the same time as that Simon Armitage and his uh, and his wife uh, Sue Roberts had put this radio play together mm. which was a cycle of poems written as if by Sophie and they very soon got to talking about turning that into a piece of theatre and Sylvia wanted me to play her which was an absolutely massive honour yeah. and, uh, and it was only really because of that that I agreed to do it because to take the time out of work to do it yeah so we did it at the Royal Exchange and um, and just experienced in that live that the, well, the liveness of it and, and just feeling the audience's reaction to it because it was such a uh, an astonishing piece really that people would just sit at the end and not clap, you know, they just people would just sit in silence yeah. at the end. I've never experienced anything like it. And I realised while I was doing it really and I've said this a few times in interviews and everyone like takes the mitt because it sounds such like proper acting like thing to say <laughs> it's better when it's actually coming out of my mouth than when it's in print yeah, yeah. But, um, but actually you know it was something that I thought had died in me that was actually just asleep yeah. and I was just like oh no and I could feel it coming to him I was like oh no 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 I really want to do this mm. so I sat with it for a few months I spoke to people spoke to Kirsch my husband spoke to you know, my mum about it and close friends and I was really astonished because I thought that everybody would say are you actually mad you're in this job you love it you've got security you've always been happy there but everybody without exception said I think you should do it you're an actor go on go and be an actor so many of the roles you've done including Hayley they seem to require a lot of um, emotional investment from you and a lot of kind of dedication and responsibility outside and around the role. Is that something that you seek? Is it something that you find important? Um, yes, it's not something that I've sought out at all. I mean, I, I, I think that it has become something that has happened to me, and I'm really, really grateful for that because, you know, I'm a political person and, and, I, and I really believe that art as a, 
a place in that and a responsibility that, that we should be telling stories about the world that we live in and trying to make sense of it and start conversations about it. So I'm really proud of the things that I've done that have that've been part of that. So Haley, obviously, with the transgender issue, the pancreatic cancer issue and the right, right to die, actually. You know, Sophie and the hate crime legislation, Broadchurch and the sexual assault. You know, there has been you know, constant well. wits with the, the cancer. You know, that was an amazing thing, actually, to come off stage every night and, and meet people who... Because obviously cancer affects so many people, the people who've lost people, people who are losing people. In some cases, people who are actually dying of cancer themselves and had come to see the play astonishingly. But by the same token, I believe that oh, it doesn't have to be about that. You know, I think that there's really important in people just being in a room together, having a good time and enjoying something. So, for example, Greatest Play, I think quite so maybe people are a little bit surprised that it's not more on the nose political or, or you know, about social issues. It's like, it's very, very, um, you know, very hand on heart, just yeah. um, romantic and, yeah. and, you know, bordering on sentimental. And, but, but we both felt like the world needs these stories at the moment. Absolutely. We just need a bit of relief and a bit of love and a bit of something that's just, you know, about human beings at the best. And it's community making as well yeah. because you're getting, you know, you're constantly present in the room with the audience. There's no sort of wall between no. here I am as a character, as an actor, yeah. and you are, you don't exist to me. You're taking people's shoes, yeah, you're yeah. chatting to them, you're yeah. getting them involved even before we come in, you're chatting. And that's uh, it just creates that sense of community yeah. and camaraderie and everyone in this lovely thing. I think, that's, I think that's massively important now. And sometimes you can just sit behind your, your phone trying to change the world like one Facebook post at yeah. a time. And it's like, and actually just the act of being in a room with other people, experiencing something at the same time and laughing and crying together or whatever, I just don't think it can be underestimated as like a really, like a, a real human need and something really important, you know, and, and, uh, and I really believe that. Let's, get, let's go into the theatre because it's yes. getting a bit windy. It's, it's, a very, it's a very Edinburgh day. It's a very Edinburgh day. It's a very After... Manchester day as well, so I'm the very home here. <laughs> you recognise the shade of grey. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and it's been quite non-Edinburgh days recently, so it's a bit sad that we have to go back to this. But um, there's not... I mean, what I want to know is you seem to have been charging around this city <laughs> seeing as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, of course I am. I mean, this is like a massive opportunity for me. Yeah, I mean, I do, I see wouldn't. absolutely bonkers amounts of theatre yeah. anyway. Like, at the end of the year, I've always seen, I've seen, like, always over 100 players really? in here. Well, because there's so much going on in Manchester. Yeah. And it's such a close community. Yeah. In, like, in our little theatre community in, in Manchester. So there's always something to see. I was trying to make um, a plan with Justin Moore, who's a mate of mine, uh, to have a brew on Wednesday. And I got my diary out and I'm seeing about five things on Wednesday. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm free at three o'clock. And I've just made this arrangement with him. And, um, and then I realised that I've actually got my shot. <laughs> the one you forgot. <laughs> I was like, I know I'm on at four. Yeah. So I made friends with a guy um, who was in a venue um, next door to mine um, who had this really brilliant show. It was a three-hander and he'd written, directed and was teching it. Um, I went to see it on the first night. On the second night, um, 
I, I bumped into him in this complete state of panic. All three of his cast members um, had got a train and left Edinburgh um, and just gone home. Um, I think there'd been some kind of huge falling out. Um, he then tried to cancel the show, but the venue said, we're going to have to charge you if you you know, would have an empty space, we're going to have to charge you. So what he did instead was he printed out the script and he made it a come along and put the show on yourself event. So every single night he would invite members of the audience to get up and perform this play that he'd spent, I think, about a year writing. Um, so quite a tricky fringe for him, I think. This is from Paul, uh, who works for China Plate theatre and he says hi Lynn in the emotional pressure cooker of Edfringe I often find a show or two that has a profound impact on my life and makes me reevaluate things does that ever happen to you I think there have been very few shows throughout you know more than 30 years of theatre going that I can honestly say have uh, changed my life but one of the things I think is true is about the fact that because you're seeing a lot of shows you're seeing them at odd times of the day that uh, maybe one's skin is thinner at Edinburgh than it is during the rest of the theatre going year and I think that's not a bad thing because I think you don't sit there almost with your arms folded and doing that thing go and show me instead you are there and you find it very easy to respond emotionally to a show what are your favorite and least favorite spaces in Edinburgh so venues oh now that's a really interesting question um in some ways, I suppose I would turn around and say that it is perfectly possible for a least favourite space to become a favourite space if I see something in it that I think is absolutely fantastic. And it works the other way. You can kind of go, oh, you know, I really like this space. And then you just have a run of five or six really terrible shows. Uh, so uh, I think it's about the work, not actually about the space. Um I'm never particularly keen on that one underbelly that smells really bad and that you get dripped on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you make it sound so attractive. Huh. This is from someone called, her handle is Littler A-C-H-Y-B. Anyway, what's your favourite Edinburgh must-see or do tip that's not a show? The mosque kitchen, without doubt. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Just absolutely brilliant. Uh, so cheap. You can uh, really fill up for a fiver. The food is fantastic. And uh, it's the best place in Edinburgh to network as well. Much better than all those kind of, uh, you know, late night bars and clubs that some of the venues run. You would definitely meet lots of starving artists. Uh, <laughs> uh, and a really good meal. Yeah, really good meal. Uh, this one was emailed in. How can we make the Fringe a less lonely place? Uh, I think that's uh, I think that's such a good question because I think it's, it's a real, uh, you know, it's a question. I would say that for me, uh, uh, there have been times over my years on the Fringe where I have felt kind of incredibly lonely as a critic and I think that's even harder if you are here particularly if you're here with a solo show it's really important that actually if you have a conversation with anybody that you try without kind of in any way prying sort of check in that they are all right and if you can maybe alert somebody in a venue if you think that that person may not be and then this one, another one emailed in. Is it possible to make money from the Fringe as a performer? Well, actually, I think that it is. And I think it depends on the nature of the show. 
Uh, I think it depends on how canny you have been about getting that show funded. And of course, uh, if you come from England, you cannot get funding from uh, Arts Council England to bring a show to the Fringe. But you can get the money in order to make your show and to tour it either before or after the Fringe. So I think people can be very clever about the way that they uh, that they work that. And though I, along with everybody else, go, oh no, it's not possible to make money on the Fringe, I certainly know a number of companies who in recent years have done so. Wow. Oh God, I'm back on the meadows. And having said that about seeing the lovely sunsets over Arthur's Seat, well, it's gone. Arthur's Seat has just disappeared. And it sort of feels like walking through a cloud and everything is damp, like damp right down to the bones kind of thing. Anyway, there we go. What a brilliant bunch of people. The next episode will be out next Thursday, 23rd of August. Keep checking the stage website for a million Edinburgh reviews and features, daily columns from Lynn Gardner. I'll be back in a week with playwright Luke Barnes, stage reviews editor Natasha Tripney, and anyone else I happen to bump into around town. For now, though, thanks again to our sponsor, Charcoal Blue. Find out more about what they do at charcoalblue.com and see you next week. Bye! So quite a common story with companies are mad directors who are incredibly demanding, not really paying their actors, quite uh, driven and unethical. And I know of this one company where they were all, you know, really, really struggling and this director was being so aggressive and unsupportive that one night all of the actors in a sort of state of uh, fringe insanity got together and decided to defecate in said director's bed. Um, I don't actually know what then happened. The director must have come home and I don't think anyone ever owned up to it. (laughs) Oh gosh, only at the fringe.